so much. It was like angels' voices singing from above. Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 1, verse 29 to 35. Give you all a moment to find it in your devices. It's up above. It's up above me. What do I have? The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as I dove and remain on him, as a dove, I'm sorry, and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Probably my uh, transcription error in an order of service. I'm trying to find out whose error it is, but it doesn't matter. Um, Norma read for us well uh, verses 29 through 35, but we need verses 19 uh, through 28 as well. So that's the that's the the big part of the scripture that uh, Norma read. But let me read for you uh, the first number of verses as well, from verse 19. The testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water, but among, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, it's June already. Graduation season. And we have some high school grads here in Sutherland Church. We'll be recognizing them in the next few weeks from the front. But graduation is one of those times where the question is put out, what are you going to do and who are you going to be And all kinds of promises are made, and you've been to graduation ceremonies, right? Everybody's going to soar like eagles. It's good. We should say that. Or Dr. Seuss, oh, the places you'll go, depending on what you like. And in churches, the most famous verse, I think, that's used in graduation and graduation cards. And I always say a disclaimer when I say this. If you've written this in cards, your grandparents' card or your child or someone you love at the church, I'm not condemning you. I'm just telling you we all get some things wrong. And that's the verse Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. 
Um, actually, it's okay if you write that verse in the card as long as you don't put with it the insinuation that that verse means that next year is going to be a great year. Because Jeremiah 29.11 was written to people who were entering 70 years of exile. And to use it in, you know... But anyway, that's a little side note. Uh, graduations about identity. What's going to happen? I mean, what's... I can see him up there. I can see the, the crew up there. And I could pick anyone. Which name should I choose? Oh, let's say Stuart. What's Stuart Orr going to be in a number of years? And this supposedly is one of those key times, graduation. I start this way because it's helpful as we go to this text to think of that with John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist and who's he going to be in this story, the Gospel of John, and in the history of the Christian church. But for the people who are sent to him, the delegation sent to him that I just read to you about, that's their question. Who is this guy? What's he all about? John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, but he didn't have that name yet. Just John. What are we to make of him? We've been looking at the prologue to this book, John 1, 1 to 18, but now 19 to 34 is the beginning of the narrative of the gospel. This is a hopeful gospel. I don't have the screen, so I'll... Uh... And it's in two parts, this section. Firstly, in verses 19 to 25, which I read second, John witnesses to himself. In other words, who is John, according to John. And in verses 26 to 34, John witnesses to Jesus, who is Jesus, according to John. Because things were happening in the region, and there was this individual, John, come to be known as John the Baptist, and people were following him. You remember his baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was calling people to repent of their sins. And there was a bit of a movement, maybe a cultural shift. And the people in power and control, they did what people in power and control do. Once the following got big enough, they sent a delegation. We need to figure out who this guy thinks he is. So verse 19. They're sent. They don't know what to make of it. And they're concerned. And they ask John, who are you? <laughs> Windows Defender is protecting your PC, thank you. Um, can you close that somehow, somebody? They ask John, who are you? And he answers, he says, I'm not the Christ. They say, who then? Elijah? Because they were expecting maybe Elijah to come before the Messiah. He said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ, and I'm not Elijah. Why is this happening? Why are they asking these questions? There was a sense that if God was doing something new, that the big thing would be the coming of the Messiah. And the Pharisees and others were waiting for this messianic visit. But they were also cautious. And they had in mind that they would determine who the Messiah was. And so anybody who was making any kind of religious claim, they were a little bit nervous about. And so John, though he wasn't making much of a religious claim at all, People were following him somewhat like a religious leader, so they were sent out. And John issues three negations, three negative statements. I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. The same idea. And then the positive statement that John offers. And it's a little bit cryptic, right? But the best answers tend to be, to these kinds of questions at least, the positive statement of John's identity is this. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for God. A direct quote from the book of Isaiah. 
There's beauty in this and blessing for you. Because you might deeply care who Andy Berge or Stuart Orr or anyone else might become in this life if you're connected to these lives. But I know for each of us, we care about our own lives. Who are we? What will we become? And here's the beauty. That John's answer reflects, it deflects away from who he is to who Jesus Christ is. His declaration of identity is a relationship word. I am the voice of one crying. And of course, as soon as you hear that, you think, what's he crying? What's he declaring? He's declaring the preparation of the way for the Messiah. And in that light, we would ask ourselves, who are we? There are things in your life, things you want to do, things that are important to you, and there are ways that you judge yourself, and there are ways that you think other people are judging you. And we do live in an extremely judgmental world. The world's much more judgmental than the church, just to be aware. The church church can be pretty judgmental wrongfully at times, but the world is, just in general, so much more. And you ask yourself, how will I be judged in this life? And you tend to think of the things that the world puts in terms of measurement. John already, this is the beautiful thing, switches away from who he is to seeing who Jesus Christ is. He refers not to what he is doing, not even, well, I'm the one out here and I've got this big following and people seem to think I'm really important and who, guy, who are you guys anyway and you're about yesterday and I'm about tomorrow. He doesn't, he's not talking about himself or even the movement. He doesn't outline his plan or his purpose or his dream or his intention. Rather, he calls attention to the work of Jesus Christ. His identity is wrapped up in that. Secondly, what John says about Jesus, verses 26 to 34. Who is Jesus? There's this encounter that we hear in the Gospels, including in this passage, I think you have to experience it somewhat as a devotional moment, a Holy Spirit moment, where John sees, John is out doing his baptizing, at least that's how I picture it, right? And in some of the tellings. And John sees Jesus Christ walking towards him. Norma read it for us. And the Holy Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And John says, now this is why you have to feel this spiritually and devotionally. John says, look or behold. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's in the middle of whatever he's doing, baptizing. But this is why John sees himself as part of this world, part of history, to point to Jesus Christ. And it's as if everything stops in that moment. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look what follows. As unclear as John was in terms of his own identity, that is how much he conveys with utter clarity his confidence in the identity of Jesus Christ. For him, it was three negations. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And then kind of a cryptic answer about his identity, or at least not that direct. With Jesus Christ, he says simply, this is the one. This is the Messiah. Everything I am doing is contained in His work. 
Because even my work is not about me. The question is why this would matter to us. In our lives, it would seem that the most important things are discovering, defining, determining, declaring who you are, finding your identity, forming your identity, becoming something in this life, finding security. These are the things that graduates tend to hear about, right? And we as parents and leaders and those who are older than than kids at that point or young people at that point, we can give away some of our lack of trust by being a bit fearful about those things. You better darn make your way in the darn well make your way in the world. Times, I mean, direction is one thing; fear is another. Whatever it is that we're discovering, defining, declaring, and forming, John shows us in Christian faith that this is not the most important thing. In fact, in Christian faith, we would say this: you cannot define, discover, or declare who you are without knowing who Jesus Christ is. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, those who don't believe this faith can't have a valid, vibrant, helpful, wonderful identity. This is a faith statement. that I can't know truly who I am without knowing who Jesus Christ is. I say that not as threat or accusation, but invitation. In knowing Jesus Christ, I discover who Truly, I am. John knows this. The theological way of putting this is you can't know who you are apart from knowing God. But this flips with you can't know who God is apart from knowing self. They they work together. The key for us is that Jesus Christ is doing something. He is alive and present. And whatever it is that John is doing, and I say this as freedom to you, and whatever it is that you are doing, It is at best secondary. It's not the first thing. God is accomplishing a work in this world. He is calling people to know His Son, Jesus Christ. To know the living Word who was before all things and in whom all things hold together. I'm not saying what you do is not important. It is just not as important as that. And you can find its true meaning in relationship to those things that God is doing and Jesus Christ is doing in the world. Now a note on baptism. There's discussion, obviously, of baptism in this text. makes good sense. John the Baptist, after all, and the scenes. John, in his discussion of identity, is saying that what I'm doing is about Jesus Christ. The important thing is what he's doing. John is, and I put it in my notes and I feel it, although I think he's kind of strange. That's how I learned about him growing up as a Christian, right? Like what he wore and what he ate and just kind of a bit of a, an outsider. Um, but he is a beautiful man. He's beautiful because he points not to himself, not to his power, not even to his spiritual power, But he points to Jesus Christ, and there's beauty in that. Of course this is an invitation for you to consider. Our world is constantly asking us to point to self or achievement, even good achievement. John's beauty is that he points points to Jesus Christ. Verse 26, and there's a reference in verse 31, 
he says, I baptize with water, but one who is coming after me. And some of you right away would remember the words. They're not actually in the Gospel of John, but they're in other Gospels. I baptize with water, but he baptizes with spirit. And in one telling, spirit and with fire. So the question is, and I've given you the answer on the screen already, are there two baptisms described here? Well, certainly not in John. John isn't saying, I'm going to baptize you, and then Jesus is going to baptize you. That's not what he's saying. John is saying, my baptism, all I can do is the physical act, the symbolic act. But anything of the Spirit that is happening in this act or in your life, that's the work of Jesus Christ. You get it? It's like a ring, like a wedding ring. But you know, unlike Lord of the Rings, this particular ring doesn't give you special powers. In fact, if you think that way, that could negatively affect your marriage. <laughs> Why isn't it working? <laughs> um, baptism, John's baptism is the same thing. The spiritual power comes from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. His work. I baptize you with water. That's all I can do. But Jesus Christ, well, that He can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The question is, and I'm, I'm not to speak against in this any other Christian practice or, or theology. Some Christian theology says there are two baptisms. You get baptized with water. And, of course, in that we have different practices, even, even in this room. Infant baptism in one, for, in one church and what many people call believer's baptism in, in another form. It's just, there's, I've always said there's just water on different ends. Right? So we're going to do a child dedication soon. We're not going to throw water on the, on the child. It's because we just do a dedication. And then later on, when the child grows up and declares, this is my faith, then we do a baptism. In Anglican churches, Presbyterian churches... The water's at the beginning part. And then often later on, there's what some denominations call confirmation, where the child now grown up says, no, I, I, I am claiming the baptism that my parents blessed me with. It's the same thing. You don't need to fight about it. But further to that, some churches will teach that there is the baptism, the water part, however you do that, and then you need another baptism. You need a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Some of it's because of texts like this or texts in the epistles. I'm not here to stand against that except in this regard. I, I believe that that can happen, that you can have a, a powerful kind of being overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, receiving charismatic gifts, whatever it might be. The difficulty comes when you say you have to have this. You need this. Like a first baptism, now you need a second one. That's not what Scripture teaches outlined here when John is saying I baptize you with water but he baptizes you with the Spirit. That can be in the same act. But it doesn't mean you should close your mind off to those who say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be a powerful experience sometimes separate from water baptism, which it can be. And so don't use this teaching to stand against somebody else's faith. But I will stand against this. There are not categories of Christians. If you have come to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then there is not another Christian who has some special manifestation, some other thing 
that you don't have, that you have to have some technique to get. Why does that matter to me? Because this work is about Jesus Christ, what he's doing, not about your achievement, even your spiritual achievement. So, if there are Christians, and thanks be to God there are, who receive charismatic gifts as part of the body of Christ, we're in this together, those of you who have not received those. The key is that we must accept and love one another and know that God is working for the good of the church and the world, the work of Jesus Christ. The key is Jesus Christ, his work, his grace. He is not and never should be understood. Jesus Christ is not a means to an end. You don't worship Jesus Christ so that you can have a powerful supernatural experience. Right? You see how you're using him then? Jesus Christ is the end and the beginning. His work, His grace, fullness, life in Him. And you know what the foundational Christian prayer is? Foundational Christian prayer, whether in coming to faith or in growing in faith, the foundational Christian prayer is simply this. Come, Holy Spirit. And show me what Jesus Christ is doing in my life and in this world. See how these things come together. We don't have to be apart. The heart of the teaching and the need of our lives counter to the way of the world. And I just kind of put this out there again as invitation and invitation for you to prayerfully consider. The heart of the teaching, the need of our lives is this, becoming less, not becoming more. Not a lot of things in the world are going to teach you that. In the ones that do, you're going to push against But I'll tell you right now, I could look around this room and I could say the presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ in many of your lives, some things that you have done the most to push against and you hate it. I want to be done with this thing or this challenge in my life or this problem. The Lord has used things to teach you what it means to become less. And in that, you have seen the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. John gets this. So often the default teaching in in this world is becoming more. That we get noticed, that we get stature, that we get influence and significance. And you can have, I'm sure, I've experienced, I wouldn't say a heart crisis, but some angst over some of these things. You can feel this in church. It should be this or more. Stature, influence, significance. You can have a crisis of identity because you're struggling with these things. Emotion. It's interesting that, well, Jill gave me an article this week from the National Post that had a big survey in it. It's really interesting. I've I've been reading it over the last couple of days, just looking at the results of the survey. One of the questions that the survey asked was, what's the best way to live life? 53% of people, and they were given some choices, 53% of people said the best way to live life is to achieve our dreams and happiness. 53%. Now what's interesting is that 67% of religiously committed people did not give that answer. 
So if you take them out of the 53, it means that well over half the people who are not religiously committed, didn't define themselves as religiously committed, said the best, the best life is to achieve dreams, your dreams and happiness. What were the religiously committed people saying? They were saying the best life is to do things for others. Interesting. It's also how things actually work. Even if you didn't believe in God, you don't have any interest in faith, all the research says this now, actually the best way to achieve happiness is to do things for other people. But we still keep going back to this default, getting what I'd like and becoming more. And certainly here in faith, there is this tremendous gift. John will say this, um, we, we'll, we're not going to get there in our study of John chapter 1 because it's later, but another encounter with John in, in John chapter 3. John the Baptist, by the way, John the Evangelist writes the gospel, speaking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist says in, in John chapter 3, my joy is found in this. You remember these words? He must increase and I must I don't, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that says, friends, <laughs> so what do I say, ladies and gentlemen, church, this is a gift this morning from me to you, and it's a challenge for me as well. Do you know this is true? Your joy will be found in that he must increase and you must decrease. What a gift. I was listening to a podcast um, over the last couple of months. I listened to some of it while I was away um, after the Nepal trip, like uh, in Ontario and then in England. And, um, it's not a Christian thing at all. It's actually called S-Town, and the S stands, they have to call it S-Town because they can't give it the actual name. But when you listen to it, that the S is a word that... And it's about this kind of town in, in the American South, and this it's a true, true thing about this character named John B. McLemore, who's kind of tortured and in mind. And it's very interesting, very, uh, it's a public radio thing. But I just bring it up because toward the end of the podcast, the, the interviewer, the guy who tells the story and the narrative, he finds um, John B. McLemore dies. There, I gave it away. And he finds a document of a, a, this Macklemore guy is this kind of the guy who could kind of rant about everything, and he's smarter than everybody, but he just seems crazy. And the interviewer and the storyteller found a, an essay article that Macklemore had written, and he called it "Worthwhile Life Defined." Wouldn't that be great? Worthwhile Life Defined, and in this document, he said. That in most people's lives, there are approximately 25,000 days. Now, that's only if you live to about 70, so, you know, there's more than that. He was cutting off some years. 25,000 days, and he said 33 to 38% of that is spent in sleep, slumber. You add work and commuting and convalescing when you're sick and aging. And add family responsibilities. I was interested to see his list of things that, you know, you can't get out of. You've got, you've got about 4,500, he called them, waking hour days left. I don't know exactly what that means. You've got 4,500 waking hour days left. In other words, 
25% of your time or less in your life in which the average person can pursue matters that are meaningful to them. This is what the world thinks. And this is too often what Christians can think. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I've got to make something of myself. Do you see how John the Baptist gives us a different picture than that? It's not just measuring each second and the time and the minutes and how much you have and what kind of impact you've had. It's I must decrease. He must increase. And I must decrease. This is the way of Christ. And the blessing of the minutes and the days of our lives, whether we are convalescing in sickness, experiencing suffering, attached to family responsibilities that we couldn't have anticipated, giving up something in our career to help somebody else, none of those seconds, minutes, or days lose any of their meaning because it wasn't about us achieving in the first place. It was about us realizing that the work of Jesus Christ is primary. Him, his work and hope, reconciliation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're going to turn to communion. And I just offer you these three kind of action points for your prayerful consideration. Firstly, if you haven't been baptized, to be baptized. We've experienced that this morning. And you can talk to me if you'd be interested in being baptized. It is something that our Lord instructs us to do. And if you are interested in living your life for Jesus Christ, baptism is one of the declarations that says, he must increase, I must decrease. Secondly, pray that Jesus Christ would be revealed in your life. What I mean is pray that you would have a moment in prayer, in consideration, more than a moment maybe, but pray that you would have a revelation like John had when he sees Jesus Christ walking towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pray for that revelation for yourself. Put your faith in him. And finally, hear the call to be a witness to what Jesus Christ is doing in the world. This is a hopeful faith. But we are all called as a community to witness to Jesus Christ and his presence in a world that is so often drowning in hopelessness and fear. Come, Holy Spirit. Let me pray for the communion. We always invite anyone to receive communion who knows Jesus Christ or would like to know Jesus Christ. We mark that this is a table of inclusion, not a table of exclusion. And I'm always reminded, and I often remind you, that Jesus Christ shared communion with Judas. However, if you feel like it would be better for you not to take communion this this morning, even as a Christian, if you're bearing a grudge against someone, if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, and that as a spiritual practice, not receiving communion can sometimes be beneficial until you go and you make things right with your brother or your sister. And if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not in a position where you're saying, yes, I'd like to know Jesus Christ, in other words, you wouldn't say you're a Christian here, you don't have to receive either. It doesn't, we're not judging anybody. There's no second-class citizens. Let's pray for the communion and the ushers will pass out. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus Christ took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body given for you. 
We receive that way, Heavenly Father. We receive the life that is in Jesus Christ our Lord by receiving this bread. This is, it's like John would say, this is only bread except by your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, by your presence. So as we receive, we ask that we would receive your body, your life. We know, Lord Jesus, that in the same way after supper you took the cup, you declared that this cup was the new covenant in your blood, that it was poured out your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we receive this cup that way, asking for your forgiveness, trusting in what you have done for us, and praying for the reconciliation of this world. Come, Holy Spirit. Bless us as we receive this bread and this cup. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.